This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. Welcome to the fourth episode of World Beyond War's new podcast series. The focus of today's episode is art and activism. We're going to be discussing how we can use art to amplify activism, to elevate our message, to grow the movement, and ultimately to influence change. My name is Greta Zaro, and I'm the organizing director of World Beyond War, a global grassroots nonviolent network advocating for the abolition of war and its replacement with an alternative global security system based on peace and demilitarization. I'm joined today by my co-host, Mark Elliott Stein. Hi, Mark. Hi. And our two panelists, Kim Frazik and V. Vu. Kim is the director of Sane Energy Project based in New York City. With a background in both corporate creative production and social justice, she has an unusual range of experience and perspective. Her integrity, creative talent, and positive energy lends to Sane's distinct brand of activism and high regard in the movement community. Prior to leading Sane Energy Project, Kim co-founded the allied group Occupy the Pipeline, and produced street performances, art, and music-filled rallies and marches, and direct actions that garnered significant media attention against the Spectrum New York, New Jersey expansion pipeline. Kim was also a member of the People's Puppets, creating eye-catching art for a variety of social causes. Welcome, Kim. Thank you so much. Our second panelist is V Vu. V is a queer Vietnamese artist, educator, and organizer based out of DC metro area and Vietnam. They use their arts as a tool to uplift collective voices and shift power to communities. V works with a variety of mediums, such as painting, printmaking, digital illustration, and sculpture, tailoring their artistry to fit the needs of different communities. V is pursuing an MFA in community arts at Maryland Institute College of Art in the fall of 2019, and V is a leader at the Sanctuaries DC. Some of these projects include creating mobilization art for the 2019 March for Our Schools, the 2019 Women's March on Washington, and live creating and speaking at the 2018 Parliament of the World's Religions. Welcome, V. Thank you. Kim, you say that you use art as a tool for social engagement. And similarly, V, you say that art is a tool for uplifting collective voices and shifting power in communities. How does art accomplish this? Can you explain what you mean by this? And Kim, let's get started with you. Sure. So when we build a campaign and we are working towards a collective goal, we do a lot of outward facing um, activities to build community with, you know, our neighbors and people walking around on the street. We live in the middle of New York City, so we have a lot of public space and opportunity to engage the public. Um, so we go out and we usually use, like, giant contestoria, which is um, a type of, imagine like a giant storybook. It, it, the contestoria actually dates back to fourth century in India, where you have a giant panel, a painting, or something, and you you sing song or recite poetry. And we usually like to uh, do giant contestoria that, um, you know, tells the story of say a fracked gas pipeline coming to, coming to town. And a lot of times, you know, people will stop and watch and then you'll usually get like a big crowd. And then you can actually just sort of break down that barrier with the giant piece of art. And similarly, like when we actually go to make that piece of art, we, you know, get, you know, people that are volunteering around this cause to come together in our art studio in Brooklyn and make that piece together and talk through the storyline and talk through roles and paint together. And the actual act of making art helps to like build our connections and relationships with each other. And then when we go out into the street, we have, you know, we are able to actually build a second layer of bringing in the community and bringing in the public to talk about you know issues that are important to us and our community and try to get people engaged in the fight. And V, how do you see art as a collective tool? Um, so I want to, yeah, just piggyback off of what Kim said in terms of art as a tool to really connect 
peoples within one community and across communities. Um, so the first part, what I mean when I say it, art really helps um, uplift the collective voices of the community is because like Kim said, right, like art really help us connect to our own shared human, like to our own humanity, but also to our shared humanity. Um, and specifically for marginalized communities, I think it's really important for us to use art as a tool for us to kind of reimagine um, our reality, the reality that we want to see happening uh, where we can actually thrive. Um, but also art creates a space for us to talk about our current reality, um, which I think is really powerful. And also what I mean by art being able to shift power to communities, right? Specifically for folks who are doing this work and again, as marginalized folks, um, I think Art helps us uh, celebrate each other. Arts help us experience pain, but also joy at the same time. Um, and again, help us reimagine our lives, which is not what we're expected to do, right? Like as like brown, like as a brown queer person of color, like I really believe that like my, my oppressors don't want me to thrive my oppressors always want me to keep working um and like striving um uh, but art really helps me thrive and that's the difference um so that's that's what uh that's how i look at the power of the arts and communities in general um those are great answers i whenever i talk to activists i always want to know what it is that originally drew you to become involved in these causes you're involved in. And I'm, I'm actually gonna ask both of you if you could you know, sort of start at the beginning. How did you become an activist? How did, how did both of you or each of you become involved in the organizations you're involved in and the, the activities you're involved in? Um, again, if we could start with Kim. Sure. I'm, I grew up in Pennsylvania. I mean, well, I grew up in a lot of places, but Pennsylvania was where I did most of my developmental age. And when I first moved to Pennsylvania, it was sort of like Philadelphia was about the closest city to us. And it was in 1985 and I was 10 years old. And that year, um, the Philadelphia Police Department had dropped a bomb on oh my God. The, the house move. that yeah. was housing um, a group of naturalists they were a communal family they really believed in war uh, in life outside of war and violence um and they happened to be a predominantly black family that followed the teachings of john africa um they were building you know community power and like you know v was just mentioning yes like black and brown people and other marginalized communities um, in our system of, you know, white supremacy and domination, you know, having people flourish with their inside heart and their human spirit is not something that's compatible with, with a, you know, like a white supremacist system. So, yeah, it turned into the Philadelphia Police Department dropping a bomb on their house after a, a number of years of standoffs and arrests and everything. And when I first turned on the television as a 10 year old kid, I saw that on the TV and because I was 10 and I didn't really comprehend the situation. Um, I thought that Ramona Africa had, I was watching her be taken away by the police and they would keep flashing up pictures of, you know, the burning house. And in my child mind, I thought, oh, this lady set fire to her house and her, her children died and they're getting, and she's getting arrested. And sort of like fast forward to my teenage years, I started hanging out in West Philadelphia with a bunch of anarchists and artists. And there was a space, uh, anarchist like gathering space called A Space in West Philly. That's, it's still there. And uh, they had um, Sue and Pam Africa from the Move family come and give a lecture about, uh, you know, what their life was like and who they are. And I was, you know, about 17 or 18 at that point. And I, it was like a big opening to my mind because I was like, oh my gosh, this was the story that I saw when I was 10 
and this is actually what was really happening behind the scenes and, and how the, the Philadelphia Police Department and the mayor of Philadelphia at the time worked in collusion against this family building their own power. And that sort of opened my mind to be like, understand the, the power dynamics in our system. And because I live in Pennsylvania, I lived in Pennsylvania at the time, you know, as I got older, you know, we come, it's coal country, it's steel country, it's, it has a very extractive um, economy as its basis and fracking came around. And um, I know people that can't drink their water or bathe their children from their tap because of fracking. And that's what initially got me involved in fighting um, the Spectra pipeline. Um, when fast forward, I lived in New York City and this pipeline was coming in from Pennsylvania to New York City and I knew what was happening on the other side of the pipeline. And I knew I had to do something to stop it. And that's when I was working a full-time job and I just ended up spending all of my time down at the pipeline, building community um, opposition to it. And uh, I ended up leaving my job to start um, Sane Energy Project with a bunch of my um, allies. And that's, that's sort of how we, how we landed in with that. <laughs> wow, wow, what a story. Um, I, I'm struck by this because I also watched the move bombing, that horrible incident and just a couple of days ago i think that there was the anniversary of that and it was in the news again and and just yeah. a couple of days ago i was reading about it again and isn't it true they burned down the entire neighborhood not just one house but a neighborhood isn't that yeah right? it was three square blocks actually of burned yeah. down houses in, in west philadelphia yes and the, and the anniversary yes was just this past monday may 13th that's right that's why i was reading about it and remembering it Wow. Well, what a story. Um, v, what about you? Yeah, I want to first thank you, uh, Kim, for sharing your story. Um, it's always really uh, inspiring to hear other folks who are also down for the cost, like sharing how they got into this work. Um, so I was uh, born and raised in Vietnam for 18 years. I only recently came to the States in 2014, um, and I was going to college. So in 2015, um, I was um, raped, um, and I think that that was like the start to everything because it was not until I was 19 years old, like alone in a country that I've never like been to for more than a year, that I knew that as a person, right, I had the right to say no that this was wrong. And then I think that incident, after folks told me that, like after folks call it what it is, after folks told me all of my options and that it was not my fault, um, that kind of opened a whole can of worms for me about just like how essentially my whole life has, in, has been a lie in terms of how like people projected their uh, expectations on me is also a very male centric, um, like white centric, white Eurocentric um, types of values. Uh, also, because of Vietnam's history of colonization and imperialism, uh, specifically U.S. imperialism, um, so that opened my eyes to my rights as a person, as a woman, but then also as a queer woman. Um, so that was in 2015. So I got started uh, with organizing around Title IX initiatives at my school. And in 2017, I got an internship at the Sanctuaries DC. Um, and that was when my life was changed, to be honest, because I started my healing process when I started um, working with the Sanctuaries DC. They really taught me that um, I don't have to stay angry. I don't have to stay hurt. Um, and they really show me the power of the arts. Uh, the Sanctuaries were folks who really supported me in a lot of ways. And they, again, like they helped me find my own power and also uplifted my voice in ways that I was never able to have. Um, but also in 2017, that was the year when I became significantly aware of um, racial dynamics in America, specifically um, 
like the power dynamics between white folks and black folks in America, but also knowing or like trying to learn about my position as um, a Southeast Asian, as a brown person living in America. Um, so that year, 2017, after I had come back from DC, so I was going to school in Ohio, in Worcester, Ohio, which is a pretty small city. Uh, it's like 45 minutes away from Cleveland. And our town uh, was 98% white. Um, and despite like the college, um, I think we had roughly like 30 some percent of like student of color. Um, don't quote me on that, but I think we're still a pretty predominantly white school, but we had enough communities to really support each other. Um, so we, I have already learned about like racial dynamics and racial tensions specifically after the 2016 election, but it was not until 2017 that I came back to school that we start seeing KKK flyers just hanging around in like packets with candies in like kids playing ground. So that was their way of recruitment. And it was just literally right off of campus. And there was a McDonald's that was like 10 minutes away from my dorm um, that, that had like a KKK member in full red like hood suit just standing there like trying to hand out flyers to folks. But also in 2017, my friend got attacked at Charlottesville um, during the white, white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, he was at, attacked by white supremacists. And also like that whole year, like the whole 2017, 2018 school year, there are just like uncountable like numbers of students, specifically uh, black and brown folks, black and brown students walking on the main street of our campus and got called out with racial slurs and got like thrown things at and got just like disgusting comments by white supremacists with confederate flags like flying behind their trucks right um so that was also when i started looking at um my organizing not just like under the lens of like feminism um uh, because white feminism is honestly how i started my organizing but as i became aware of racial dynamics i started learning more and try to work towards anti being anti-racist. Um, so that was how I got to where I am now, where I'm trying to like, constantly learn and organize with a, a very like intersectional lens and trying to learn like where, like what, what are some, what are the habits I adapted from just like growing up in Vietnam and not knowing about any uh, international issues in general and just what it means for me to be organizing in America, to be organizing with communities who I cannot call my own communities, right? Um, but that's essentially how I got into this work. Wow, thank you so much for sharing your stories, V and Kim, and for opening up with our listeners today. Um, if we hone back in to talk about the intersection of art and activism and using art as a community organizer, I've been thinking about how we, we read about how people learn in many different ways, right? Some people are visual learners, some people are tactile learners, and if we extend this thinking to community organizing, then by using a variety of different artistic mediums and approaches, we could potentially engage a much broader spectrum of folks when we're doing activism instead of just taking a more sort of cerebral or into an intellectual approach to organizing. So for example, someone might be more responsive to coming to a sign-making party or as you were talking about, Kim, making art together rather than you know, petitioning or phone banking or other tactics. So do you think that nonprofits and activism groups are underutilizing the power of art and what steps can we take to use art to broaden our movement and engage more folks? Uh, Kim, do you want to start us off? I think a lot of you know, Sane Energy Project, we work really hard at, to take a cue from Adrian Marie Brown. We, we work really hard to build an inch wide and a mile deep instead of a mile wide and an inch deep. Um, you know, V, I'm, I'm, I'm so moved and, and so sorry about some of the experiences that you've had. When people come into our studio, we have all different kinds of people that come into our studio from all ranges of 
of backgrounds and culture. And when we make art together, it just, it, you do tap into this sort of human spirit that we all share. Um, whether it's people, you know, sometimes people will come in and they're like, I'm just going to bring food for the party and we'll just, you know, some people will cook for us and some people, you know, will just sit there and talk with us. Some people really like painting. Some people have really learned to take their own leadership and start, you know, directing pieces. Like, I want to see like more of this color. I think that will really help to get more attention and things like that. Um, it's just, a. I see sometimes also, you know, lar larger organizations do tend to have like, you know, this responsibility of making sure that they stay in quote unquote, stay in business. Um, you know, they take on the larger an organization gets. I think that there's a lot more responsibility you have to, you know, you're now hiring people and making these financial commitments to them to achieve the goals of the organization. So it can, you know, capitalism crosses a really funny line when you're trying to be a nonprofit and and try to work towards goals that are running counter to this capitalist extractive model. Um, so it, you know, it can be really tricky, but I, I do think that like, at least I think my organization has really helped to inspire some organizations just in New York city that work on environmental issues or environmental justice issues um, by, you know, having people come together to make art it does shift the relationship um, that you have with each other. And it does shift the power dynamic. Like, you know, I'm the quote unquote director of Sane Energy Project, but there are so many different kinds of leadership models that um, intuitively and naturally just come when we go into the art studio. And when people are able to bring their skills and bring their vision, it does shift how people start to build their own personal story within this movement. And it really does break down, um, you know, this sort of like pyramid type model that we are all used to in our system into more of a, a circular or, you know, a horizontal model and where we're all relying on each other to, to fight this fight together. Um, it's something that's very hard to put into words, I think. Um, when you feel it and you feel that spirit when you're with each other, you know it's there. And it happens with, you know, music. We, we bring in the peace poets a lot to come in and teach us songs. And people, you know, are like, oh, I, I get it. I, I can sing. I have a voice. Um, I never knew I did. Or people will come into our studio and be like, I, I'm not an artist. And I always say to everybody, everybody's an artist. When you leave the studio today, you're going to have a totally different perspective on, on yourself. And a hundred percent of the time people walk out being like, whoa, I made that. Um, I'm going to carry it. I'm so proud of it. And it really helps to like build their confidence and have ownership over the, the campaign, have ownership over how the campaign is sculpted and looks. Um, and it's just a really beautiful experience to see some other person come into their own power and be able to, um, you know, build the movement with us. And I think art is just such an important part of it. And I really believe that if we could help all organizations bring arts and culture into how they organize, we could really build a, a, an, an incredibly powerful movement to, to justice and to breaking down some of the barriers that currently exist. And V, how have you been using art to highlight those issues that you were talking about in terms of racial justice and feminism and women's rights? No, I do want to say yes to literally everything that Kim said. Um, so I think like, what I have been doing um, and also alongside with centuries, um, it is really take it like one step further, right? So we, we look at ourselves as artists, but also artists who are able to bring arts into the, into the communities and let folks know that like all members of the communities are co-creators of this art that we're making together, right? Um, because I think most of the time, um, Kim, when you were talking about 
folks uh, saying that they're not artists. I think a lot of the times like artists or just art in general are like put on a pedestal that is created by, again, like capitalism, white supremacy and um, like a very male centric society. Right. Um, and so art became very inaccessible to people. And then with the division of labor, like now you consider artists as someone who like needed very specific training, like need very specific conditions and like environment to become artists. Well, like in actuality, like all of us, like all human beings are creative in our own ways. Um, and so at the sanctuaries, the way that we've been trying to bring arts into the communities is that because we believe that everyone has their own story, everyone has their own ways of expressing their stories in very creative ways, we try to broaden the different mediums of arts that we're using to bring into the communities. So for example, with screen printing, um, you can screen print with one community versus you can do bookmaking with other communities or you can do puppetries with other communities uh, or sometimes it's creating chants or sometimes it's just um, writing poetries and writing songs together. Um, and we really try to tailor um, our workshops or just um, our events to the populations who we're serving. Um, and that's how we've been trying to use this use art to broaden different movements. And what we do at Sanctuaries is that we train artists to work for other organizations and we train artists to become not just artists, but activists and artists and also organizers because now you're coming into different movement and different organization. You're not just talking about art. You're, you're making everyone an artist in their own way. And you're also in a lot of ways, making the movement more profound and sustainable because, again, I think, like, art provides us with very, very powerful, like, ways for us to connect with one another and connect to ourselves um, and really heal, right? Uh, and I think that's what is um, lacking and that's a lot of the conversations that we're starting to have now is that how we're going to stay sustainable building movement uh, against our oppression against oppression and, and against inequality, right? Um, and I think, really think that art helps us do that. Um, so that's just how, yeah, we've been doing that. Yeah, and thank you to the Sanctuaries for leading a screen printing for justice workshop at our event in April, uh, the No to NATO, Yes to Peace event. We made screen printed bandanas and a huge sign that was the lead of our march. Yeah, of course. Uh, it was it was a uh, it was our pleasure. Um, but now that you brought that up with like patches, right? Um, so when I was thinking about uh, the medium uh, in terms of how we're able to try and like tap into different mediums, I also think the final product of the arts uh, and the accessibility of the final product of our art making process uh, is also key to engaging people, right? Um, because not like when you experience art and organizing like through uh, creating arts together, like Kim mentioned before, when you're sharing this space, like you can have very important conversations about your own story, about the other people's story, about why we're here, why we're doing this together, how are we going to do this together, and how we're going to move forward together, right? But also being able to take a piece of that back to you, take a piece of that process back with you to to your home and to your communities and to bring it to different communities. I think that's another step in really broadening the movement and engaging folks in this process. I love these answers, both of them. Thank you so much. Um, you know, it is really inspiring to find a different way to approach these issues that we all care so much about. I want to focus in on anti-war activism specifically, and really all four of us are involved in various types of activism. None of us are just anti-war activists. It is our focus at World Beyond War. So I would like to ask both of you, and I'd like to sort of ask you as somebody who's not 100% involved in anti-war activism all the time, what is, your, what is your perception of where the anti-war movement is right now? And actually, I, I'm just thinking that um, Medea Benjamin of 
of Code Pink just put out a statement a couple of days ago that I like that we really need a new start to the anti-war movement. And if we think about how during the height of the Iraq war, 2002, 2000, or you know, I guess 2003 was when it started, but before then, there was a really big movement. Here in the United States, I mean, the, uh, v, this might seem ironic to you, but here in the United States, the Vietnam era was actually a high point of resistance to war, even though we were conducting a horrible war. We in the United States were, you know, I, w I was a little kid at the time, but were very vigorously protesting the, the horrible American war in Vietnam. We actually feel that we turned the corner on that, that we, we actually made a difference. Now contrast that to today. I think many of us feel very helpless very powerless in the anti-war movement. There's a real lack of understanding out there, but I'd love to hear what both of you think about where the anti-war movement is today and what do you see as ideas or thoughts about how we can do better at this? Sure. Funny, funny you say that. I'm, I'm right, right as we're doing this interview, I'm, I'm sitting on Rockaway Beach. We, we're having a victory party because um, we defeated a fracked gas pipeline here on Wednesday. Um, after wow. a three-year battle and a, a military helicopter just flew over me. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, my, my experience, I think that what really switched on with, with me and, and the connection to the work that I do fighting the fossil fuel industry is uh, when, when things, when the light bulb really went off on how it's all connected was or during... Um, Occupy Wall Street, I think. Um, we, were, we were fighting a couple of different pipelines in the New York City metropolitan area. And one of them was a high pressure fracked gas pipeline running 105 feet away from Indian Point Nuclear Power Plant. And we, that was just in the early formation of them proposing this. And we were like, this is absolutely insane. Um, I worked together with a bunch of um, um, activist elders who were in the anti-nuclear movement and the anti-war movement and listening to them um, at a lot of their uh, workshops about the nuclear, um, you know, economy and, and how it all works and how the energy system feeds into the war machine and the military system and how it's all connected together was a real um, light in my mind that went off saying like, oh, now I see. So like, you know, you, you think about all the things that come out of the military that turn into, you know, things that people use um, as, as like chemicals in their garden because they needed a place to off it. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know, like uh, what, whatever Roundup is, was came from like military grade um, poisons and you just think through like how connected the economy is and how the economy um, controls our lives. And right now we live in this monopolized economy that's based in war. And um, when I learned a lot about, you know, the connection between fossil fuels and the military and learning from the folks fighting Indian Point for the last, you know, several decades, um, understanding the connection with, with um, you know, how how the how the energy system and the military system is all connected in i think basing basing our knowledge and resistance on on the how it's all connected into each other and really starting the view of instead of calling it the anti-war movement but just really understanding how the what the economy really is to us personally and to us as a culture and to us uh, as a global species um, and how we can imagine ourselves out of this, like how we can imagine ourselves in a world that doesn't use money, um, how we can imagine yeah. ourselves in a world that uses um, another type of, uh, uh, you know, conflict resolution um, or, or like re building our, our, our relationship to the earth and to the land and to the waters and the air, like changing our relationship to that, I think is a way that we can all work together on, on the things that are all connecting us. Um, 
I wish I had a, a clear campaign plan for this, but it's something that we all collectively need to work on together and ha keep continue to have these conversations like on your podcast. So, you know, the four of us, I think this has been such an awesome conversation and I would love to keep talking to you about these sorts of things so mm -hmm. we can really imagine new ideas, which is how, what's going to get us out of this hole that we're in in the first place. For sure. Kim, follow up on that. And then I'm going to ask V the same follow up as well. Do you feel any sense of optimism or possibility for making a dent in the culture of, of war and militarism? Do you feel it's, is there any sense of hope at this point? And that's, you know, a question I ask myself every day. Yeah, I mean, I think it fluctuates from day to day. You know, some days I have good days, some days I have bad days, you know. <laughs> um, I think uh, we're in a, we're in a real serious crisis um, right now. I mean, I think we, but we 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 have had a series of crises throughout human history, right? Where yes, it's it's you know a lot of people are like, oh, this has you know been so bad this this you know Donald Trump reign, but it's like things have been terrifying for many communities long before Donald Trump came along, and and he's just a, a symptom of a of a very very sick unbalanced system yes. and um you know I, I i do believe you know if we think about this in a, in a larger perspective and you know as i as i sit here on rockaway beach and, and look out at the ocean right now i i just think you know that there's a bigger story than than our present moment right now and if we really like there is a bigger cycle that happens and i i do believe we're in it we're, we're in some pretty dark times right now and a lot of the darkness is due to our inability to connect to each other and build an equal system that uplifts everybody's um, living spirit that shares this earth um, on you know I mean we are just one tiny planet floating through cold dark space together and if we can't figure it out um, it's it's a, it would be the a tragedy of the universe we have such a such a gift here and I do believe that if there is even just one of us on this planet that is holding that light and knowing that we have a gift and knowing that we can make a change, that light is in existence. And so that's the only way I can think of it is like, if that light exists somewhere in some living creature on this planet, it, it, it exists and there, that is the hope. And so, and the days that I feel the darkest, I know that my, you know, there's other people out there, other living things out there that are holding that light. So, um, you know, I think the bigger cycle, I, I, I do believe that we will overcome this. I, I, I do believe that. Well, thanks. Um, what about you, V? All right, so just to address the first part, which is um, where it's at in comparison to other movement. Um, so I think, again, like Kim said, because when we're talking about this movement, right, this is not, these are not separate movement. Like the, the LGBTQ movement, the environmental justice movement, Black Lives Matter, uh, anti-war, all of this is 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 all connected right we're all this one movement against the word to our own human dignity right and to our own humanity and so i think it's a little tricky to compare different movements um and also um kim you said something i about like building something like an inch wide wide and like a foot deep rather than building something a foot wide and an inch deep, right? So t sometimes when you look at a scale of a movement, that doesn't, really, that doesn't really show you the actual impacts that the movement has, right? So I think that, that's where I'm like, I, I don't know how to make this comparison because when I look at movements in general, we're all growing. We're all trying to figure it out. None of us has this right. Like we're all trying to find ways to grow ourselves, grow our movement and how to engage with one another and build upon one another instead of building our own things and not supporting one another, right? Um, then when I think about um, like ways to like grow movements in general, right? Um, so I can use the example of the, the Women's March 
because I also think that Women's March cover uh, pretty much a lot of things, right? Especially for this year, 2019, um, Women's March had uh, 10 agenda items, including LGBTQ rights, uh, environmental justice, uh, and state violence. Um, and a lot around that is, is essentially anti the word towards our own people, right? Anti-violence the and fighting the violence towards our own people. But then when you look at the scale of the Women's March, right, is one of the biggest uh, mobilization in Washington, D.C. But then when you look at folks who are, who are protesting, um, it's mainly white folks who are protesting. And then black and brown folks, black and brown women, black and brown femmes and non-binary folks, um, are not represented. And also when you look at, um, it's like, for example, the art team that I was on, so I was on the art team that created Arts for the Women's March. Um, I think, um, so the art team, I think in my perspective was a blessing because we were able to bring on board people from different communities and really try to root our art making in the communities um, instead of just creating arts for ourselves, creating what we think is good for the movement because we're trying to, we're trying to learn, we're trying to stretch ourselves and position ourselves as um, learners from the communities because also at the centuries we believe that communities knows what is best uh, for the communities right and so that was our kind of our effort to really change the face of this movement because when previously before this year when I look at the women's march I never thought that this was for me um, I, I am not white I am not straight I don't identify as a woman I identify as women on like good like some days and then sometimes most of the times I don't. And so what does it mean for me to be, to be living in a femme presenting body, but also be a part of this fight. Right. Um, so, and that is, that example is just to say that, yes, like historically in the past, women's march has always been a white movement and white feminism is still there, like it's still the, the main phase of the women's march, but there are people who are trying. I think their leadership is really trying. People really learn um, from each other. People really stretch themselves and actually make efforts to grow because, again, I think we're all trying to figure this out together. Um, so I think that's just what I would have to say about growing movements, just like seeing who's on the table, who's making all the decisions, who's getting compensated, who's getting the resources, um, and also what the structure looks like within your organization, uh, within your movement, how are people being treated, um, and what is the culture of the movement that you're trying to build? Because your movement, what you are creating on the inside is what you're going to project on the outside. Um, so I think that's just what I would say in terms of growing and broadening the movement uh, and collaborating with one another. In terms of optimism, man, I think also it depends on the day. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> especially, Kim, as you were saying, you're celebrating your victory. Um, and that's, that's literally so beautiful. But ironically, right, you still have like military uh, helicopters flying around. I'm currently in Vietnam, right? And I think we send more people to the military than we send people to school. Uh, and we teach more about our, our history of war and like the importance of protecting ourselves uh, and defending ourselves from foreigners um, rather than like protecting ourselves from ourselves, like protecting ourselves from the oppressors within the country or like spending our resources um, to to fund our people, right? We're still a global South country. We're still a developing country. Um, and so our resources are very limited, but a lot of those resources are dedicated to, mil uh, to the military, to national security. Um, and so that's being here and having this conversation is ironic in its own way, because when I look around, I am being surveilled. Like I, I'm being watched, like, like the efforts to increase militarization is everywhere. And so I think like at times like this, when things are 
in front of me and it's, it's hard for me to convince myself that this like that we're going to make changes right i think these type of conversations talking to folks like y'all and like being in touch with people who i can have these conversations with that really keeps me going um because i i think for me to be able to be to stay sustainable in this work um so one i do think about the bigger picture like kim said about like fighting for something that's greater than us um but also i changed the way that i looked at changes right or like the impacts so instead of looking at uh, changes on a bigger scale changes on like a, a national international global scale i look at the changes that it's happening on the daily right like How am I different from yesterday? How am I growing from yesterday? How are the people around me changing from yesterday? Um, because these are the types of conversations that I would never imagine like that I would be having like a couple of years ago. So for me to be able to be here and do this type of work and to, to be able to even understand that these issues exist, I think that in itself proves that changes are, are possible. Like, And it, it happens every day and it happens every day. And that's just how I look at it. I also want to, because you brought up the question of um, communities and identity and gender, ethnicity, I'd like to extend that to Kim as well. Kim, do, do you see issues of um, identity, gender, ethnicity coming into play in the artistic processes that your organization does? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I identify as a woman and we live in a patriarchy and there are, <laughs> it's, it's an everyday thing that happens, you know. I think that a lot of times the arts help to break down a lot of those sort of um, identities and help level out the playing field. But in the actual organizing work, for instance, you know, I was just in, you know, Mayor de Blasio's office on Friday. And why, how did I have access to that meeting? You know, as V was pointing out, who, who has the access and who has the resources? It's like I was invited to that meeting because a white man from a very well-endowed organization was invited because they have those connections to the mayor's mm. office. But indeed, that, um, that white man who has a lot of, um, you know, resources and connections didn't understand the history and the facts uh, in the same way that I think my organization does, which is all, you know, pretty predominantly female-led. And, um, you know, we were in that meeting and, you know, we knocked it out of the park and the mayor came out against the pipeline, you know, three days after our meeting right. um but i do believe that yeah like i would never have had access to have that meeting um and why is that and how do we change that um and i that is about gender and that is about race and that is about money and it is about you know and that is all connected to to access and and resources and and we do have to really look at who does have the access and resources and if that was changed around where some of the smaller communities that have you know that, that don't have the resources what would change look like if that was changed around and i think that you know this is all about about gender and race and i think this is why we also like to bring a lot of art into our work because it does help to break down those barriers Well, we're approaching the end of our time together. So the last question I have for you both is, what is one takeaway for someone who is listening to this podcast right now and wants to go back to their community and enact change, perhaps using art or other forms of activism? What is one recommendation that you would have for, for someone looking to get involved and make a difference in this work? I think that really genuinely laying out what you want to accomplish and working backwards from that, I think feels really right. Um, learning about how different tactics can be of use in different situations um, could be really wise um, on taking that back to your own community. And I think like the number one thing is really stepping up your listening skills and listening to the people um, inside your own community on, on what, 
what they think and feel and, and work together on like coming up with some solutions um, feels right. And that's, that's all about learning how to make decisions together as well. Um, and that can be a really challenging process, but it's all worth it in the end because you really can learn to get to know each other and learn your, learn about yourself and learn about your capacities for organizing and, and building art and, you know, lots of, lots of things, lots of really beautiful things can come out of it, come out, can come out of just a plain old conversation as we just saw here today. Amazing. Um, thank you, Kim. So, um, I think just to sum it up in one, I would say, um, being open to changes. Um, cause I think I, I previously mentioned that, but also being open to changes, not just changes that you want to see in the world, but changes that you have to make for yourself. Like understanding that even you yourself, the way that you think, the way that you behave, like even your conscious and un your unconscious mind, you are a product of this white supremacist, capitalist, male-centric, Eurocentric, all of the isms, right, um, society. And you were born into this, you're socialized into this, and you're conditioned to think in very certain ways. So what does it take for you to unlearn all of that? What does it take for you to create changes within yourself in the way that you perceive the world, in the way you perceive your identity? Um, because again, like, what you are seeing in yourself, what, what you want to see, you're going to project that to other people uh, and the world while you're doing this work. Uh, but also opening up to changes within your organization, within your culture, within um, like your work, your approach, uh, all of that. I think, I think it takes a lot of learning um, and it, it's fine to be wrong. Like you have to be wrong and acknowledge that you're wrong to be able to get it right, right? And I don't think we, we I don't think anyone get it right yet. Um, and with that being said, I think open, opening up to changes, but also like taking accountability uh, for those changes also is a, a really important thing. Well, thank you so much, V and Kim, for joining us on today's podcast and for really starting this conversation about the connected nature of our movement, as you both were saying, and the intersectional nature of all these issues and how we can work together to, to go up against these incredible issues that we're facing. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Our podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating. Visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental impacts of the war machine and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war.